0: Good morning and welcome to week number five of our series, Creed, as we are exploring together what we believe by following the path of the Apostles' Creed. Each week, you know, if you've been here, we have been digging deeper into the core of our faith because the Apostles' Creed does summarize the historic Christian faith. And as we do that, we're learning together, we're confessing together what we believe as Christ followers. And we're, we're studying the Bible But we're using the creed to push us back uh, to God's word. And I wanna keep reminding you each week that whenever we confess the creed, we are simultaneously uh, rebelling and also professing allegiance. Every time, it is rebellion against the unbiblical ideologies of the day, and it is also a pledge of allegiance to God and to God's kingdom. So let's stand together, and each week we continue to do this. We confess the Apostles' Creed together, remembering that as we do it, we are part of God's global kingdom of Christ followers now going for 2,000 years. So together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And you may be seated. Today is the third week that we are exploring the second article of the creed, which is about Jesus. And maybe you've noticed that about three-fourths of the creed is all about Jesus. And this is so appropriate because we are a Christian church. We're Christ's followers. And, and last week, if you're here, you'll remember we looked at his incarnation. We looked at his crucifixion, which are both very familiar doctrines. Today, uh, we're gonna explore some unfamiliar territory before we move back onto more familiar ground. Here's the part of the creed that we'll be zooming in on. I believe in Jesus Christ. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. Now, the resurrection, we, we, we know about, right? But descended to the dead. Maybe you've been wondering what that means this entire series. Today, we're gonna wrestle. We're gonna wrestle with some of the hardest realities the Bible teaches. That means today, we're gonna be talking about death We're gonna be talking about hell. We're gonna be talking about what God's church has confessed together now for 2,000 years. And we wanna face those realities. We want to see how at the center of our faith is Jesus. And Jesus has defeated death. Jesus has defeated hell. And Jesus invites all his people to join him in his victory. You know, it's interesting, sometimes people like to accuse Christianity of being an unrealistic faith, you know, that Christians kind of, you know, live in religious fantasies. You know, they'll say it's just like a way to deny, you know, reality. It's a way to just kind of cope with the harsh uh, realities of life. But I would say that anyone who says that really doesn't know anything about what the Bible teaches, Our faith, I would say, is the most reality-based faith in the world because only Christianity squarely faces this world's harshest reality, which is death. See, most of us in our normal lives, we don't do that, right? We avoid talking, even thinking about death. And when death does cross our mind, it often brings us fear and anxiety. For some of us, even panic. And I think part of the reason why we don't know how to think or or talk about death is the culture we live in. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but you probably agree with me once you hear it. We live in a like death-denying, youth-obsessed culture, right? I mean, American culture idolizes youth. And it is kind of a way to deny death, to pretend it's not going to happen to us. And and as part of that, all of us, or many of us, we're into these fitness fads and we we go into and out of all the time. You know, some of us do these health cleanses again and again, trying to renew ourselves. We'll, We'll do anything to fight off wrinkles, Uh, including, I actually looked this up, just, I was kind of curious about some of this because I'd heard some things, including using things like bee venom and sheep placenta facials. And then um, everyone's favorite, snail secretions. Yes, there are people who take that stuff that the slugs lean on the sidewalk and they put it on their face and supposed to help with the wrinkles and there's also if you go to the list there's some things I just really can't talk about uh, here in church um, <laughs> they're just not exactly appropriate and you know it's one of those things as all the kids say I YK I don't even know if that's how you actually say it but um, if you don't know what I'm talking about don't worry about it but in truth this instinct to fight aging pretty normal it highlights something that all of us feel and that is this, death is not natural. We just cannot accept something deep within us. We cannot accept that we were born to die. And I know if you've ever been in a room with someone when they died, you you know exactly what I'm talking about. Tim Keller, in his book On Death, um, he opens the book with these words. He says, death is the great interruption tearing loved ones away from us or us from them. Death is the great schism ripping apart the material and immaterial parts of our being and sundering a whole person who is never meant to be disembodied, even for a moment. Death is the great insult because it reminds us, as Shakespeare said, that we are worm food. Death is hideous and frightening and cruel and unusual. It is not the way life is supposed to be, and our grief in the face of death acknowledges that. Death is our great enemy. It makes a claim on each and every one of us, pursuing us relentlessly through all our days. It has been said that all the wars and plagues have never raised the death toll. It has always been one for each and every person, yet we seem far less prepared for it than our ancestors. Today, I wanna do something that pastors have been doing for about 2,000 years. I wanna try to prepare us to die well. You know, when you think about it, we probably don't talk about death nearly enough around here at Southwinds. I mean, we study the Bible. We believe it's God's word. It's authority for our lives in everything, right? And we talk about, you know, what the Bible says for just about everything else. Our families, our, our marriages, you know, our anxiety and depression, our jobs. I mean, it goes on and on and on. But we almost never talk about death. And so today, we're talking about death. Aren't you glad you came? Today we're talking about death, and today we're going to see that Jesus is the only one who can lead us to victory through death. And we're gonna do this by, by looking at what, what happened when Jesus died, particularly on what the church has historically called Holy Saturday. What did Jesus do? While he was buried. Have you ever asked that question? I mean, what did he do after, you know, he he died on the cross on Good Friday? What did he do before he rose from the grave? So we're gonna look at Holy Saturday. Then we're gonna look at how Jesus defeated death on Easter Sunday. And then finally, as we've been doing each week, we're going to talk about how this matters for our lives, how it brings clarity and balance and counsel and reorientation. So here's the first thing. You can write this down in your notes. Uh, he descended. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. And what this means is that Jesus fully experienced death. So again, I ask this question, what happened on what has traditionally been called Holy Saturday, the day after Good Friday, the day before Easter Sunday? I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 60. And This passage starts on Good Friday, right after Jesus died. It carries us into Holy Saturday. Matthew writes these words. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, and went away. So again, what was Jesus doing on Holy Saturday after his death and after his burial? His body laid there in the tomb before God raised him from the dead. And again, this is unfamiliar territory. Most of us know about Good Friday. We, we talk about the cross. We sing about the cross all the time. Most of us know about Easter Sunday. He's risen, right? We, we believe that. We celebrate that. But what about Holy Saturday. What was Jesus doing while he laid there his body in the tomb? Well, the creed says he descended to the dead. Some of you are familiar with, maybe you've heard more often the other version of this line, which says he descended to hell. Well, this is what the creed tells us Jesus was doing on Holy Saturday. But again, what does that mean? What does it mean? And to answer that, I think we need to start by clearing up some confusion First of all, we have been saying he descended to the dead because I believe that saying he descended to hell doesn't communicate what the Bible actually teaches us. And part of that is when we hear the word hell, we import many ideas that have little connection to what the Bible actually teaches about hell. We we just think about fire and darkness and Satan and all the demons with all their horns are running around just terrifying everyone. Well, that's not what the creed is actually talking about. To be more clear, uh, the creed tells us that on Holy Saturday, Jesus went to what the Bible calls the place of the dead, not hell, the place of eternal torment. And I'll explain that more in a moment. Um, I think I need to tell you that the afterlife is probably more complicated than many of us think. Now, the Bible is crystal clear on this. It clearly teaches that all people live forever in and after afterlife. But if you think that when people die, they immediately go before God's judgment seat and then they directly go either to heaven or hell depending on their response to Jesus, well, that's not actually what the Bible teaches. And the full biblical picture is this. The Bible shows us what we might call two versions of the afterlife. And I think the best way to think about it is this. There is a current afterlife. In other words, what It's happening right now during this time in which we're here on earth. And then there is a future afterlife that one day will commence and then it will go on forever. There is an afterlife. Be clear on this. Everyone spins forever somewhere. But the Bible teaches us that the current afterlife is not the same as the future afterlife. That The current afterlife that we will live in when we die is going to be a state in which we live on as disembodied souls, either in God's presence or apart from God's presence. Either experiencing God's comfort and peace and joy or beginning to taste what hell is going to be like forever and ever. Now, the Bible calls the place that we go to the current afterlife, uh, the Bible calls it in the Old Testament Sheol, in the New Testament, the Bible calls it Hades, and that's what we're going to refer to this place of the dead as in this message. It's the, it is the place of the dead, and the Bible also shows us that in this place of the dead, Hades, that's current afterlife, there, is, there are two compartments. There's a righteous Hades in the presence of God where we receive comfort and joy and peace, and there is an unrighteous Hades that is apart from God's presence. Now, this is why Jesus can say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He's talking about righteous Hades. Uh, The clearest vision of this is found in a teaching that Jesus gives. You can look it up later. It's Luke 16, 19 to 31. It's called the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And, And what Jesus talks about is these two men who have died, and they're both disembodied souls, and we see that they're in two different places, what what I'm calling uh, two compartments. The, The rich man is in unrighteous Hades. Lazarus is by Abraham's side, and he is in righteous Hades. And somehow they can see each other, and somehow there's communication. Somehow this rich man who is suffering torment, he reaches out, and he asks to be comforted. And so this current afterlife is called Hades, where our disembodied souls await the future afterlife. We're either in this place of comfort in God's presence or we're in a place of torment away from God's presence. Our our bodies remain in the grave, but our souls are in this this, uh, place of the dead. Again, if we know Jesus, we go to his presence, and we are with him when we die, we are receiving comfort and knowing joy and peace. And if we don't, uh, we are not receiving those things. So in the future afterlife, which is the next thing I wanna show you, our bodies and souls are reunited. And this shows us how all people are gonna live forever, and they're either going to live in what we call heaven Which is the new heavens and the new earth. You can see that in Revelation 20, or they're gonna live forever in hell. And the New Testament word for hell is Gehenna. Now, the future afterlife is going to follow the the final judgment after all people have been raised from the dead and all people have been reunited with their bodies. And this, of course, has not happened yet, as no one has stood before Christ's judgment seat. So, So here's what you need to know on Holy Saturday, Jesus' soul went to Hades, the place of the dead, the place of the dead for disembodied souls. His soul did not go to Gehenna, the place of eternal torment. That still leaves us with this question, what was Jesus doing there? Maybe you're thinking, I thought he just was dead and he was just in the tomb. Maybe the best way to ask the question is what was Jesus' soul doing there? Or some of you might like to ask What in the Hades was Jesus doing on Holy Saturday? A little bit of light levity for this very serious subject. Well, let me move to the, the doctrine of the descent. In the New Testament, we see at least three things that Jesus was doing in Hades on Saturday while his body remained in the tomb. His soul went to Hades, first of all, to rescue Old Testament believers, Maybe you've asked the question like I have. I think all of us probably have as we read the Bible. I mean, what happened to those people who believed in God and followed, you know, Yahweh back in the Old Testament, but they just happened to be on the wrong side of the BCAC divide? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus descended to Hades to rescue them and to make a righteous place in Hades. Hades. See, in the Old Testament, death was never good. There really wasn't this righteous Hades. They all went to like this waiting period, but now Jesus descends and he lifts them up. Maybe you're thinking right now, I think you're making that up. Well, take a look at Ephesians 4, verses eight through 10. The apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Jesus goes down. He rescues Old Testament believers. He lifts them up. They are with him. Second, Jesus' soul went to Hades to proclaim his victory over death while dead. And this is so awesome when you think about it. Jesus goes down to this place of the dead and he basically preaches the message. He proclaims the message, I win. He's like saying, tomorrow, just watch this. Just watch what's going to happen. In 1 Peter chapter three, verses 18 and 19, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, if you've ever read 1 Peter, you might be aware that many consider this to be the single most difficult text to interpret in all of the Bible. And there's a lot more that we're not talking about today, but for our purpose right now, we focus on the fact that Jesus was in Hades. He was proclaiming his victory over death, even though he's still dead. That's what he's doing. And you can also notice another verse that is more familiar to you. It's Philippians 2.10, um, where Paul says that there is a day coming when every knee will bow. Where? In heaven and on earth and where? And under the earth. Now, Paul is showing us in that verse the, the biblical conception of a, a three-tier Universe, and this is not necessarily any kind of a physical thing, but, but the reason he says that the souls under the earth bow to Jesus is because Jesus has been there and Jesus has proclaimed victory. Philippians 2.10 is telling us Jesus is king, not only over heaven and earth, but he's also king of the underworld. In other words, where Satan thinks he's king, no, Jesus is king. Third, Jesus' soul went to Hades to succumb to the full penalty of our sin in our place. Now many of us know, maybe you've memorized Romans 6.23 which says the wages of sin is death. See, the result of our sin, that verse is telling us, is that we die and we descend to death, that that death overtakes us completely. And I think many of us kind of think, well, you die and that's all it's talking about. But it's more than that. It's not just that we die at the moment of death. It's also that we are fully encompassed with the reality of death and that our souls go to the place of the dead. And so this means if Jesus is coming to be in our place, coming to fully pay for our sins, He was not just crucified. He died, and then he experienced the totality of physical death for us in our place, and that means he went all the way down, all the way to the place of the dead so that he could totally overcome the effects of sin. In other words, it's not just the cross. It's also burial. That's why that's in the creed. It's not just burial. It's also descending to the dead. You see? See, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, Because that's what happens to us. We don't just die and our death is over. We go into the afterlife. We descend to the place of the dead. And so the doctrine of the descent means, and this is such good news, It means that Jesus has gone before us. Jesus has experienced the full judgment we deserve for our sin, the fullness of death. He has gone to the place of the dead and every terrible thing in death that just hovers over the heads of every human being as we live under that reality, we can know Jesus has been there. But here's where God's word makes this turn and becomes the best and most beautiful news in the world. The story does not end with Jesus' descent into death. The story turns into Jesus' defeat of death and that is Easter Sunday. He rose again. He rose again. And what this means is that Jesus utterly defeated death. Go back to Matthew's gospel. If you look at Matthew 28, the first verse, we see the story of Easter, which is declaring that though Jesus has succumbed to our greatest enemy, he has defeated death through the resurrection of his body. Let's read verses one through nine. It says, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. And I I love how this describes so much of what it means to follow Jesus, right? Afraid and yet filled with joy. They ran to tell his disciples, Verse nine, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Now don't miss the end, that they clasped his feet and worshiped him. There's a couple of things I, I wanna highlight from these verses. First of all, notice how this passage just moves from mourning over death to insane joy. Death that great enemy that destroys every human being. It has destroyed Jesus and the movement Jesus started, but Jesus lives and mourning turns into joy as the women realize death could not hold Jesus down, that he has defeated death, our greatest enemy. Mourning turns into joy. Second, don't miss the physicality of the resurrection. Notice how verse nine tells us they clasp Jesus' feet. Matthew is directing our attention, focusing it down. It's like he's shining a spotlight on this. He wants us to see this. He's telling us Jesus was not a disembodied soul. He's not some ghost coming back from the place of the dead. This is the flesh and blood Jesus who has physically defeated death, that great enemy. His heart started beating again. His lungs filled with oxygen. His eyes opened again. He took a... (gasps) giant gasp of air and he came back to life and he sat up and he stood on his feet and he walked out of that tomb because he was alive and they saw him and he had a body and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. See, the resurrection is our hope and Jesus descended to the place of the dead in order to defeat it forever through his physical bodily resurrection and this is part of why I said to you earlier that Christianity is it's not about living in some spiritual fantasy land that denies the realities of life. It does not deny them. It faces them square, head on. And it does that because our hope is in Jesus who is the first one to rise from the dead. Amen. And here's what this means for you and for me. If Jesus has power over death, the Bible tells us, That means death will not have the final say over those who are his people. And that means you. Death is not the last word for you if you know Jesus. If you know Jesus, the Bible promises because Jesus has risen from the dead, one day you too will rise from the dead. Your soul will be reunited with your physical glorified body and you will live forever. And friends, that's our hope. That's at the core of what we believe. That's what we should hold on to every day in this broken world. Michael Bird says, the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that God's first order purposes for creation will come to fruition. Life will yet reign over death. The decay will give way to transformation. And the time is nigh when death itself will work backwards into life. How do we know that's going to happen? We know it because Jesus lives. We know it because he has risen from the dead. We know it because he has defeated death. See everything that God did when he created the universe, when he created this world and he made it good. Everything that sin destroyed. Everything. Jesus death and his physical resurrection turns that all around and begins the process of restoration that one day God will consummate in glory. This is our hope. This is what Jesus' death secures and it secures that reality for us, for us. So I've showed you this descent into death. I've showed you about resurrection Let's talk about this. How does knowing these realities of Jesus' descent to the dead, his resurrection from the dead, how does this change the way that we live? I mean, how do these things bring clarity and balance and counsel and reorientation? First, clarity. I said earlier that the Bible teaches that everyone lives forever, and we've talked about the afterlife, the place of the dead, about heaven and hell. Jesus' death and resurrection gives us clarity that Jesus is our only hope. He's our only hope for the afterlife going well for us. Now, I don't know, maybe someone is here, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't know if I actually believe any of that. I don't know if I believe there is actually an afterlife. And one of the things that I've learned being a pastor for 35 years is that's really easy to say in the abstract. But I've also noticed during those 35 years of being at funerals and officiating at funerals. I've also noticed that when a loved one passes away, almost everyone instinctively assumes there must be an afterlife. They certainly long for it. In the face of that casket, they are hoping for reunion, right? And if there is an afterlife, here's what this is telling us. If there is an afterlife and we believe there is, then the only hope of that going well for us is Jesus. Many people also resist the idea of hell. Maybe some of you are thinking this right now. I think all of us have at one time or another asked this question, how can a good God send people to hell? And I will tell you, that's a question that deserves a a good answer. So, how can a good God send people to hell? And I want to respond to it in two ways. First of all, I want to assert that God's character demands judgment and hell. God's character. See, in the final analysis... It is because God is loving and good that there must be judgment and hell. And I understand at first uh, hearing of that, that probably sounds kind of counterintuitive. So you may be saying, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let me put it this way. To love something means that anything that harms that thing you love makes you angry, right? And the more you love something, the more you love something or someone the angrier you will be when they are harmed, right? See, we need to clear this up. Anger is not the opposite of love. Rebecca Manley Pippert in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons*, says this. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insights of the human race he loves with his whole being. In Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, he, he says this, the Bible says that God's wrath flows from his love and delight in his creation. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying It's in peace and integrity. Now, if you stop to think about it, you can see that this cultural moment in which we live, which has a characteristic right now, especially of this kind of overwhelming longing for justice, where you can see that it is actually at root a good longing for justice. And underneath that longing for justice, here's what I want to claim, is a longing for the doctrine of hell. It is longing for the doctrine of hell where unjust actions are actually ended and punished. Our longing for justice is a longing for a way and a place where there are consequences for evil, consequences for sin. And when you understand that, it begins to make sense that God's character demands that evil be punished. I just wanna tell you, he would not be a good God if he did not judge evil, if he did not punish sin. We want him to do that. Second, second reason I want to give you is that our deepest human longings call for judgment in hell Paul makes this argument in Romans 1 and C.S. Lewis also does in his writings and the argument basically is this hell ultimately is God giving people over to what they most want and what humanity most wants according to the Bible is autonomy More than anything, we want to live free of God's loving authority. We want our own way. We want to turn in on ourselves to look inside uh, for meaning and purpose and life. We want to be in charge. And I hope, as you hear me say that, I hope you recognize that that is our culture today. That is the worldview today. That is what everything in this world and country and culture in which we live is telling you you need to do. All the promises of good things in life, right? Where do they come from? when we do our own thing, when we we are true to ourselves, out from under any kind of authority, that's that's what the Bible says is actually rebellion. That's actually sin. See, when when people choose autonomy, here's what Paul says God does. This is Romans 124. He says, God gave them over to the desires of their hearts. It's not God's best. It's not what he wants But because he's loving and good and kind, he allows us to choose to go our own way, even if we are choosing self-destruction. And one of the things that all this means is that this idea that God forces someone to go to hell against their will, that's not biblical at all. The Bible never says that hell according to the Bible is in the end God giving us over to what we want to our freely chosen self-destructive autonomy. He gives it that to us, we give it that over forever. See, hell is the place where God finally and fully withdraws his presence where he allows human beings to live our own self-absorbed existence and it is miserable. Because we weren't created to live that way. We were made to live and thrive in the direct presence of God like, like plants that thrive in the sunlight. But we reject God in our sin. We, we turn away and we look in on ourselves for meaning and purpose in life. And I, I think this gives us an insight into why fire is the biblical imagery of hell so often. I, I'm, I'm not sure that there's literal fire in hell. There, there may be. I don't think the Bible demands that that's what's gonna happen. But at bottom, when you start to think about it, the image of fire is communicating this idea of disintegration. What does fire do? Fire burns stuff up, it breaks it down, it makes it come apart. And so hell is the trajectory of a soul that is living in self-absorbed, autonomous existence out into eternity. It is an eternal, miserable disintegration. That's why C.S. Lewis, in such an apt statement, he calls hell the great monument to human freedom. See, the point is, the point is you don't want that. You don't want to disintegrate forever. The point is, Jesus is the only one who can save you from that. He's our only hope. And he's our hope Because he has overcome the grave. And because he has overcome the grave, he invites you to give up. Just give it up. Give up living under your own disintegrative authority. He invites you into his kingdom to live and to thrive under his life-giving, loving authority in the direct presence of God. See, this is where we get clarity as we look at Jesus' descent and his resurrection. It forces us to think about the reality of death and about the consequences of how we are living right now. Second is balance. This teaching brings balance about how we we think about death. And I wanna explain it this way. When we belong to Jesus, we can find balance between grief and hope. Now, some of us struggle with this. Sometimes followers of Jesus they, they, they think grief is wrong. And most of the time in my experience is because they are uncomfortable with it, so they want to deny it and push it away. They can't handle when other people are actually grieving. That leads to us saying kind of stupid stuff that we shouldn't say. You know, just telling people who've just lost a loved one, it's okay. No, it's not okay. You know, sometimes we like to quote Bible verses, and while they're true. A lot of times, I'm just telling you, that's not the time to quote a Bible verse. Some of you, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, so if you feel guilty, it's the Holy Spirit, it's not me. (laughs) Some of you really should just shut up. You should just listen, especially when you're around someone hurting. Quit talking, they don't need your talking. And so you need to accept that grieving is okay. You say, how do we know grieving is okay? I don't think the Bible says we should be a people of grieving. Well, I'll just take you to our model, our example in all of life. And his name is Jesus. Think about about the one time that we know about when a friend of Jesus died. Do you remember that story? It's in John chapter 11. His friend's name was Lazarus and Jesus goes to the place where he's been buried. Everybody's mourning all around him. And we've read the whole story so we know what Jesus is gonna do next, Why, right? Jesus is going to what? Raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows how this story is going to end, right? But what does Jesus do? John eleven thirty five, 35, which is every child's favorite Iwana memory verse. Shortest verse in the Bible, two words right? Jesus wept. I mean, just think about that. Jesus wept. Jesus grieved. I mean, this is so mind-blowing. He does this right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. And if nothing else, this is telling us grief is appropriate we should grieve because death is unnatural. It does tear us away from those we love. We do grieve, but the Bible says we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Our grief is balanced with the hope of the resurrection. As I said earlier, uh, the New Testament tells us Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, which means we're gonna follow in his footsteps, and so we have hope. First Thessalonians four thirteen and 14 says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be un." uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope for we believe that jesus died and rose again and so we believe that god will bring with jesus those who have fallen asleep in him death is terrible and so we grieve but jesus has defeated death and so we have hope balance third is counsel Uh, These realities say so much to us about how we should live now that they change everything about it. And one of the things they tell us is that we should live now with the end in mind. I could put it this way. We should live as people who are dying. You ever thought about that? You're gonna die. Everybody's gonna die. So we should live with that reality in mind. The great New York Times writer David Brooks uh, writes about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And he, he says, you know, at a funeral, no one talks about resume virtues. No one says, oh, he was so great at his job, he crushed it. He made all kinds of money. No, well, they talk about character What kind of person were you? Were you a person of love? They talk about eulogy virtues. This is about living with the end in mind. And it is so easy in our day. And I think even more so where we live, You know, like we're at the center of so much here in the the Bay Area. It's so easy to lose sight of the reality of death. I was thinking this week, you would think that after two years of COVID, we would be more attuned to the reality of death. But I don't think we really are. And I'm pretty confident that when COVID finally kind of slides off the scene, that most people didn't go right back to the way they always lived. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 32 to 34, Paul is talking to believers who have lost sight of the afterlife, the reality of the resurrection, and he rebukes them. He rebukes them because they're living like the world. They're not living in light of Christ's resurrection. This is what he says. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, in our terms right now, I would say, if there's no afterlife, why are you here? Why are you in church? Go home. Go home. Have a party. Don't take Pastor Mike's words out of context now, okay? (laughs) I know who some of you are. (laughs) But that's really what he's saying. You know, if there's no consequences, live your best life now. Don't worry about the future. In in verse 33, he goes on to say, I think the reason you're living like this is you've connected yourself with people who don't believe in the resurrection. He says, verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. He says, because you're hanging with people who don't know the truth of Jesus. But he says, you do, you do. So verse 34, he says, come back to your senses as you ought, stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. He is saying, maybe to some of you here today, I don't know, maybe some of you here today, come back to your senses, stop sinning. Stop sinning. He says some people are ignorant of God, but you're not. You're not ignorant about God. Maybe a good way to think about this entire teaching is just to think about trajectory and think about it like this. Am I on the trajectory of hell? I mean, living my life, my way under my own authority, I'm going to get to Jesus when I'm ready, you know, sometime later, or I, am I on the trajectory of, of heading towards life and, and flourishing health, the new heavens and the new earth as I am progressively submitting my life to the life giving authority of Jesus. So what's What's your trajectory right now? See, if you call yourself a Christian and you're not on the right trajectory, come to your senses and stop sinning. See, Jesus will return one day and you are going to be raised from the dead and there are consequences to the way you're living your life right now. Fourth is reorientation. If you pay attention to these realities, they reorient us around what matters most. And I I told you earlier that I wanted to prepare you to die. I wanted you to think about eulogy stuff. I wanted you to think about that thing that we avoid so often here in our country. Tim Keller in his book calls death spiritual smelling salts. (laughs) And you know, athletes can use smelling salts to wake themselves up. They're they're strong and Tim Keller says that's what death does to our our spirits. It wakes us up. It reminds us of ultimate reality, that reality that we don't wanna think about there, that we're gonna die. See, today, today we remember that Jesus, he's the only one who can deliver us from death. He descended to the dead And on the third day, he rose again. And if we we put our trust in him, then one day, friend, one day we will follow him into resurrection life, life eternal. We don't see this much in our area, but if you've been in some places with deeper, longer history, maybe you've seen this. Historically, uh, old churches, it was very common uh, for them to have graveyards built like right next to the church. You ever seen something like that? Uh, it's more common in you know churches built centuries ago, church surrounded by graveyards. And it was actually very intentional. I was thinking this week, it kind of almost makes me wish that we like had a graveyard right outside our church. <laughs> but they did this, think about it. They did this because each week as God's people gathered for worship, they would They would have to walk through the place of the dead on their way to worship. Think about it. We don't do that, right? We we put graveyards like out on the outside of town. We put them on roads where you can drive 50 miles an hour, you're past it in a flash, you don't have to look at it, just green grass, you move right on. Don't think about that life to live, let's eat and drink. But churches used to intentionally put graveyards where people had to confront the reality of death. And, and think about this, it was also very communal. Back then, when people went to church and they walked through the graveyards, think about this, the people that, that were buried there were people they knew and people they, they loved. And so every week, every week as they came to church, they would walk through the graves of their friends and their family. And some of us are probably going, that's really morbid. But I wanna tell you, the only reason you think that is you're not thinking biblically about this reality. You need to have some reorientation See, every week they they would walk through the graves of their friends and their families. And as they did that, they were reminded of their own mortality. And then think about this, as they walked past those graves, they walked into church where they would once again confess and celebrate the reality that their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had conquered death, had defeated the grave, had risen from the grave, and they did not have to fear death anymore. Did this every week this ultimate reminder of reality, we're all gonna die. And in our world today, we need that reality. But as Christ followers, we must only think about our mortality in the light of the resurrection and the eternal life that Jesus has won for us by his death, his burial, his descent, and his resurrection. We're all gonna die. But we don't face death without hope because Jesus has defeated death. And that means if we are united to him, so will we. Jesus Christ, he's the only hope for the afterlife going well for you. He's the only hope. And so I'm gonna ask you as we close, how will you respond? How you respond to this truth? If you have not yet trusted Jesus with your life and eternity, if you have not yet repented of your sin, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Lord, as we have confessed, the Lord who died and was buried and who rose again, defeating death forever. Will you do that today? Maybe you know Christ, but you're actually, truthfully, you're living in fear of death. Will you give him your fear? Will you trust him with your fear? He has experienced death fully for you. He has been there and he has defeated death for you. You do not have to be afraid. Maybe you know Christ and you need reorientation. His descent, his resurrection changes everything. They reorient us to what matters most. And maybe you realize today you've gotten distracted by temporary things that you need to turn from and turn back to things that are eternal. Jesus Christ, God's son, died, buried, descended to the dead, raised again to life eternal. He is our only hope today and forever.